Good morning. Um, like I said earlier, it's very good to get to see everybody this morning. Um, the series we're doing um, here right now, this is about the fourth lesson in the series. So if you're, if you're visiting, you're kind of walking into the middle of an ongoing conversation about um, what's on the top of the board there. Um, Devin will remember uh, visiting now the, uh, the time, I think it was 2018 at the very beginning of the year, I had preached through this uh, series, but it seemed like just the culture of the church right now, it would be really beneficial and edifying for us to go through these lessons again. And so we're going to be studying about the purpose of the universal church. And just a couple things very quickly to review what I mean by that, what the scripture means by that. The universal or like the worldwide church, just God's people everywhere of all time. Uh, the word church isn't necessarily even of itself a religious word. In the book of Acts, we've looked at before how in Acts chapter 19, there was an ecclesia or church of a riotous crowd. But Jesus' church, not his group of groups, but his group of people, it's simply individuals who are in fellowship with Jesus. And so God's people everywhere composing the universal church are not a group of denominations, not a group of institutions, not even a group of congregations or even faithful congregations. The universal church would be individual people who are in fellowship with Jesus Christ through all times, ages, and cultures. The local church, however, as we see throughout the New Testament, uh, churches like the Corinthian church, the Ephesus church, the churches of Galatia, these are composed of individuals. We'll see this uh, in these charts, these yellow lines connecting these individuals to Jesus, um, these circles obviously representing people. The local church are individuals who we see willfully involving themselves in fellowship. And this fellowship means having a common identity and a common work. So the way that I've illustrated this is you've got Greg, Stan, and Mary with this yellow uh, color in the middle representing their common work that they're doing together, their spiritual work in Christ. And then this orange circle is their unified identity in Christ. Now, we've seen in kind of a bigger scale how with different congregations, there's maybe a different uh, composure within the, within the church, or composition rather. You remember the church at Sardis that we have on the bottom there? The majority of the Christians who were in the church at Sardis had actually lost their fellowship with Jesus. And yet, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus still talks to them as a church. He singularly mentions to the angel of the church in Sardis. But within that local church, there were still a few people who Jesus said who had not soiled their garments and they would walk with him in white for they were worthy. So there were individuals within this local church who were still connected with Jesus universally, even though locally the church was not in a good condition. We've looked at in Corinth, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you had a man who the congregation needed to disfellowship themselves from because he was living openly in sin. And so I've pictured that as, obviously there was more than three people in Corinth, but you have two individuals there in fellowship with Jesus, but they've made a mistake that they need to correct, that they're involving somebody in their work, in their identity as a church, that they need to disassociate from because he has lost his fellowship first with Jesus. Then we've looked in other places to see that there were people who even when they couldn't involve themselves with a local church for situations or circumstances out of their control, that didn't necessarily mean that they weren't in fellowship with Jesus. So what, 
we want to look at with this lesson, though, is the purposes first of the universal church, and then in the next lesson in this series, we'll look at the purpose of the local church, Christians who are working together, what's their purpose in being a local congregation, and then finally we'll look at the purpose of assembling together. And in God's word, all of these things are defined for us, and so it's just a matter of, like we've mentioned before, looking into God's word, just being humble and honest about what it says, and just being willing to do whatever God says we should do and who we should be. So the first purpose of the universal church, we're going to kind of state this as showing God's glory in the world is the primary purpose of the universal church. I think what we're going to see is that this nearly encompasses everything else that's going to be said about the purpose of the universal church. So just keep that in mind, that really the the primary all-encompassing purpose of the universal church is to show God's glory in the world. Um, If you still have your marker to Isaiah 60, um, go ahead and open your Bibles again there. So on the board, it's going to be really simple this morning. I'm just really going to have um, the titles of the different purposes of the church and then the, the scriptures next to that. So Isaiah chapter 60 again, verses 1 through 3. Um, I think everyone here, most everyone has heard me um, talk about this before. But Isaiah, within this context of the book, it's nearly to the end of the book now. Isaiah has 66 chapters. But the context of Isaiah here is heavily messianic. There are many direct prophecies of Jesus saturating the latter half of the book of Isaiah. For instance, we're very familiar with Isaiah 53, right? It talks about the suffering servants who would bear the sins of many and intercede for them. At about Isaiah 55, Isaiah goes from prophesying about the Messiah singularly to then in plurality talking about the people who would come from or out of the work of the Messiah. So for instance, chapter 59 is an exposition and long explanation about the need that we have for salvation, our universal need for salvation. And then in verse 20 of Isaiah 59, it says, A redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your Um, from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And then Isaiah 60, this is one of my favorite prophetic passages in the Old Testament. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So we'll talk more about this idea of God's people being light um, in a moment. But something that I think is helpful to note about prophecies like this, that if you'll kind of allow me to use the term, God, in a sense, through the prophets, has given a predestined purpose and identity to his people that God was looking forward through the prophets to the kind of people that New Testament Christians would be and become. First uh, Peter chapter 1 talks about how uh, the prophets of old, they looked forward to the sufferings of Christ, but also the glories to follow. And that's the context of Isaiah chapter 60. But 
Isaiah looks forward, really God speaking through him, that in verse 3, nations would come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. If you remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, I think, very deliberately picks right up on this prophecy. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus famously says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that all who enter and who are in the house may see the light. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, again, he defines his people who listen and submit to his will that they would be the light of the world. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I put etc. on there because there's more passages in the New Testament that make this connection that God's people in the New Covenant are a light in the world around them. But Philippians chapter 2, I think this kind of alludes to some more things that we'll see throughout this lesson. That being a light like what Jesus said in Matthew 5 doesn't just happen by chance. It's by people submitting and obeying God's word and living in a way that shows others the glory of God's character. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So this command is being given to the church in Philippi. But with being this light, is this what a local church is supposed to be and is this what an assembly is supposed to be? Or is this who we are called to be universally, each of us individually living within the world? Uh, We'll talk more about that in this next point here. In showing God's glory to the world, Isaiah also looked forward to God's people being memorials or monuments of God. Um, Turn to Isaiah, back to Isaiah. We'll be turning back to Isaiah for nearly every point in this lesson. Um, But in Isaiah 55, this is a new covenant invitation being made in an Old Testament time. Um, This is the passage that famously says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways higher than your ways. But this isn't just God boasting about the superiority of his thoughts and ways. It's an invitation to receive his thoughts and to receive his ways. So verse 1 says, Ho, every one who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. And if you look at verse 30, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. This invitation ends talking about what God is going to do with these people who come and they listen and they receive his word, they receive his thoughts, they receive his ways. And verse 11 says, his word is not going to go out without returning back and accomplishing what he desires it to accomplish. Verse 12, you will go out with joy, be led forth with peace, and then the mountains and the hills and the trees are all going to erupt in singing and celebration and praise. In verse 13, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, for it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. The idea, to put it simply, is that God is going to transform people's lives from being destitute, from being useless, to being abundantly blessed by God and his riches and grace, 
to being able to be useful for God's purpose. Again, as a memorial of what God is able to do in his power and in his mercy. Look, at, uh, look forward just a few chapters in Isaiah 61. Um, this same principle is repeated in Isaiah 60 and 61 multiple times. But just in this one passage, Isaiah 61 verse 9. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Again, think about the church universal is individuals living amongst the nations, doing the will of God, showing forth the glory of God. Verse 9, God looks forward to a time when the offspring that would come from the Messiah and his work, they would be known among the nations. They would be recognized as the offspring that God had blessed. They would be monuments of God's power in their transformed lives. Ephesians chapter 2, again, I think picks up on the same principle. Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about the salvation we've received, how we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, useless, afflicted, and in bondage and slavery to sin. But then God in the riches of his grace in verse 4, because of his love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In verse 7 now, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Think about this. Is this true about you? As you are living among the nations, as people see the life that you're living, can they see that God is showing the surpassing riches of his kindness towards you? Um, not, Not to embarrass you, Paul, but I was talking to Paul a little bit earlier this week And Paul was doing some housework at a friend of his uh, that he's been friends with for years. And what Paul told me is he used to have a a serious struggle with anger, but an opportunity came up when he was working with his old friend where he would have usually in his past have gotten very angry and his friend noticed that he was not angry at all. And he asked, well, what's happened? You know, this you should be blowing a gasket right now. And that gave opportunity for Paul to talk about how God has changed his life. That's what we're talking about, being in the midst of the nations as a memorial of God's power. Now, another side of this, Devin and I, it's kind of nice that Devin's here because there's an illustration that I used the last time I preached this lesson that I think is still very helpful. Devin and I, a few years ago, we had studied with a preacher who, in studying with us, was very adamant that he believed a local church should assemble every single night of the week, and especially on Fridays, because on Friday nights, people are going out and doing all sorts of things that are against the will of God. And so the church should assemble every night so that there's a light within the community. What do you think about that, right? Should the church assemble every single night and so we have no time to raise our children and spend time with our families? Is it the local church and the assembly that is the light? Or is it individuals who are the light? It's the individuals who are the light. It's the individuals who are the memorial. How is it that God predestined and purposed in the Old Testament prophecies? How did he purpose his name to be made known to the nations? It was through the holy living of the people living among the nations, showing the glory of God. Last thing about showing God's glory in the the world is housing the Holy Spirit. This 
may sound kind of unusual, but turn back to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Um, This passage in Isaiah really parallels in many ways a prophecy quoted in the book of Joel in Acts chapter 2. Joel said that in the last days he would pour forth his spirit on mankind and uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost quotes that as a, a signal that the day of Pentecost was showing the fulfillment of those days the prophets were looking forward to. And similarly in Isaiah 44, uh, you look at verse, uh, verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up, and notice this, spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. Another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will honor, and will name Israel's name with honor. So again, notice this is speaking of individuals here. In verse 4 and 5, that it's so intimate that somebody is saying of themselves, I am the Lord's, I belong to him, even writing on his hand, belonging to the Lord. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, again, a very similar principle that we see uh, in its fulfillment in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, just very simply, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So notice he's motivating the Corinthians to understand that they need to abstain from sin and sexual immorality and use their body not for immoral purposes, but rather to glorify God because each Christian has a responsibility to understand that they are bought by the price of Jesus' blood, that they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So as Isaiah was saying that people in the New Covenant times, they would belong to the Lord so evidently that they would speak it and they would show it to the nations in the same way Paul writes that we are not our own, but rather that we've been bought for a price as well. So the universal church primarily serves as light within the world, as memorials and monuments of God and his name, his character, his glory, his kindness, and also that we make it evident that we are housing God's Holy Spirit, that we are temples of the living God, living holy lives in the world. The second thing is God's people are called universally to serve and minister as priests and within that, teach the lost as well. Look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6. So in verse 6 of Isaiah 61, it reads, But you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be spoken as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. So notice he says you are going to be called priests of the Lord. We're going to talk just a very little bit about what the work of a priest would entail. But again, he's looking forward to the kind of people that would come out of the work of the Messiah. And he says, you're going to be called the priests of God. And you're going to eat the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast. Again, speaking spiritually of, uh, of truths that have been realized through the work of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
First uh, Peter chapter two verse nine. And again, it's not that um, Isaiah is speaking of riches as we would think of them, but in the New Testament we understand that these are the riches of God's mercy spiritual blessings that have been poured out in the heavenly places upon us in Christ Jesus. And again, just using very vivid language to describe invisible spiritual realities that have been realized in Christ. So look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 beginning. This makes a similar allusion. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Again, with these being spiritual truths that have been realized in Jesus. It says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how do you usually, when you think in your mind of like a priest, what, what tends to come to your mind? You know, you may think of like in the Catholic Church, you have people who wear all black and they have like this white collar. I've never looked into that and why they do that, but you know, white collar around their neck, but not all the way. But really in, in the Bible, that's not what a priest is. It's never what a priest is. And in the New Testament, it teaches that, as Peter says here, that every Christian who's been redeemed by God is a priest who is called into the work of a priesthood. And if I was going to summarize just very simply what the work of a priest is, the first work of a priest would be bringing God to people. So just like what we talked about in the first uh, series of points, that we're called to glorify God in the midst of the nation. So in a sense, we're bringing God to those who don't know him. But then the second role of a priest, it's not just that we bring God to people, it's we bring people to God. A priest bring God, brings God to people, and a priest brings people to God. And every single Christian in the New Covenant is called into this work of bringing God to the nations and then bringing the nations to God. That in a, in a prophetic and figurative sense is what's being described in Isaiah chapter 60 and 61. This work that here is described as fulfilled in us. So it's not the local church or the assembling that serves as the priest, again, it's individuals who serve as priests universally. And then with teaching the lost. Turn back to Isaiah again, but this time the very beginning. And this one is another, uh, I think maybe a little more well-known uh, messianic prophecy about the age that would come from the work of the Christ. Isaiah chapter 2, and if you look at verse 2, it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How does this happen? When it says that from Zion, the word of the Lord will go forth. Is it that God has like this scroll, scroll catapult that shoots out, you know, Bibles among the nations or things just drop from the sky? No, it's that the people who are from Zion are going out. And just as it says in verse 3, they're going out and they're inviting those who are far away 
to come in and come near. Come, let us go. Let's go up to where the Lord is, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let's learn his ways that we may walk in his paths. And again, this is what individuals are doing. They're going out and they're bringing people to God. They're taking the responsibility of teaching. And obviously in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus charges his disciples with the work of teaching. Uh, If you turn to Matthew 28, Jesus' final command in Matthew's gospel, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, is this describing the work of a local church or an assembling of a local church? Or is this describing the obligation that individuals have within the church? Again, this is an individual responsibility. This is a part of the work of the universal church, to go, to make disciples, to teach. And again, this is encompassed within the natural work that a priest should understand is his duty, is going out and teaching. And notice in verse 19 of Matthew 28, just like with what was being said in Isaiah chapter 2, go into all nations, be impartial. Go to all people and teach them in a way that convicts, that shows them their need for God in their life. But not just ending at the point of that need, going beyond that in verse 20, constantly teaching to observe all that I commanded you, um, all things that God says. So teaching the lost. It's a responsibility of the universal church that each of us has that responsibility. I just want to bring this up here and kind of allude to this. We'll, we'll talk more about this a little bit later. But what happens when a church, a group of Christians, when they begin to misunderstand where these responsibilities are assigned by God? What happens when Christians begin to think that it's the work of the local church to teach the lost or it's the assembling, the purpose of assembling is to teach the lost? Well, then we begin to fail to even meet or reach those responsibilities. The more I feel it's someone else's responsibility, the less involved I'll be willing to feel in needing to meet that responsibility myself, right? So, and with with these things, obviously in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a chapter dedicated to talking about the assembling of Christians together locally. And it mentions in 1 Corinthians 14 that an unbeliever may come in and hear God's word being preached. They may see what's going on. And God willing, they would be convicted by what they hear and their heart exposed and they would fall on their face and proclaim, God is certainly among you in 1 Corinthians 14. But that's by happenstance. That's not because the assembling is for that unbeliever. Rather, he mentions multiple times in 1 Corinthians 14 that the assembling is for the edification and the mutual upbuilding of God's people who are meeting together. Now, again, if somebody who does not believe comes in, then praise God. They may be convicted by what they hear, but the purpose of the assembling is not uh, to teach the lost. It's to upbuild, to edify, to meet the needs of the saints primarily. So in proclaiming God's praises, I want to turn back to Psalm 67 here to start and we'll work our way back into Isaiah. Um, The Psalms, you've heard me mention this before if um, you're a member here, uh, it's very likely. The Psalms are actually quoted more in the New Testament than any other book of the Old Testament. Um, The Psalms are quoted in the New Testament even more than the book of Isaiah, which is 
sang a lot. Isaiah is quoted quite a bit in the New Testament. And this is one of those psalms that's very, again, not just messianic, but even beyond just the Messiah, it looks forward to even the times beyond the Messiah. So look at Psalm chapter 67, verses 5 through 7. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Keep that language in your mind and turn to Isaiah 61. Um, Just something amazing in the Old Testament is not just how cohesively the Old Testament works together pointing forward, but how the New Testament connects so cohesively to the Old Testament reflecting backwards as well. So we'll we'll see that here in Isaiah 61, uh, verse 11. So remember the psalm says it's like the earth yielding its produce and praise coming out of God's work throughout all the nations. Now look at Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. Did you know that one of the tasks of a priest, again, the note being 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Your translation may have said that you may proclaim his praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that, notice in verse 11, it's not just that righteousness springs up among the nations. Can I suggest to you that righteous living without praise is an incomplete picture of our role in the world? And oftentimes, praise is without righteousness. Some people will praise God, but they don't live righteously, and that's just as empty. There needs to be both, that we are living in righteousness before men and before God, but also that we are openly willing to give praise to God, to give thanks to him for what he's done. And again, this is a part of the identity that is in Isaiah of the people that would spring up among the nations to give God glory. So finally, the role of the universal church, the purpose of the universal church, to do good works in the world. Still in Isaiah, look at chapter 60, verse 21. Chapter 60, verse 21. I've worded this, that we are meant to be a working workmanship. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. Uh, all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, at the end of the context dealing with our salvation in Christ in a a personal, uh, personal way, mentions that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. So when he says that they are the work of my hands, that, that means obviously that God would perform a work on us, but it also means that we, in turn, would reveal that work by working as he's designed us to work. So it's kind of like, you know, designing a computer or a smartphone. You know, if it's designed to work in a certain way, but then when you turn it on and you try to use it, it doesn't do what you've designed it to do, then it's really not working as it's been intended. So for us to be the work of God's hands, that he would be glorified, like the other things we've looked at in this lesson already, that implies that we would be working within the world, that we would be obedient to God and submitting to his will so that these purposes can be fulfilled for his glory. 
Pursuing and making peace. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter 2, um, at the prophecy about the mountain of the house of the Lord being established above all mountains, the nation streaming to it, people from Zion inviting those on the outside to come in to be taught of God's will. In verse 4 he says, And he, that is God in Zion, he will judge between the nations, he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus again, I think, picks up on this principle, fulfilling it, when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And being a peacemaker doesn't mean just keeping peace. Note it's making peace. It's a peacemaker. That we are striving to go into the world to bring people into peace with God, but we are also striving to proactively make peace with one another, to cultivate that peace, to cultivate what only God can cultivate, what only God can do. And again, this manifests his glory within the nations. You may, you may remember Romans chapter 12 as, as well. It says, so far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. Or Hebrews chapter 12, which says, strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again and again, Christians are called to be a people who are proactively pursuing and making peace in the world. And Philippians says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And finally, uh, just in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, I think all of these things are summarized so concisely in Jesus' words just in this one passage, in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. It says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Whose role is it to go out and to do good works in the world? Whose role is it to be generous to the world, to give freely, to, to bless freely? Who has been assigned that responsibility by God and by Christ himself? Is it the assembling of a church locally? Is it the local church in general? Or is it Christians universally, people who are individually serving and following Jesus, whose responsibility is it? And what begins to happen if we begin to misunderstand where our purpose lies, where our responsibilities lie? What if we believe it's the local church's responsibility to give to the world, to be generous and to bless the world? Well then, just like many churches out in the world, then we need to be putting on events or doing things financially that are putting our name out within the community. But again, that's not where God has assigned responsibility. The memorial for God is the individual. The glory of giving freely and blessing people and working within the world, that work of being known as God's children by imitating their father, that work in verse 35, you will be sons of the Most High. An individual responsibility. So, Somewhat redundant, but I want to conclude with this question. Glorifying God within the world, working as priests and teaching the lost, doing good and being generous within the world, doing good works, is the local church these things? Or 
Does the local church work together and assemble together to equip one another to be these things in our lives? I've heard somebody um, say it this way. This has been very helpful for me, kind of like putting all of this together. The universal church, you could think of the universal church as God's gift to the world. The local church is God's gift to Christians. The universal church is God's gift to the world. And the local church is God's gift to Christians. And if I'm being honest about all of these things, I struggle with all of these things, any of them. If you pressed me about it, each of these things are, they're a high calling. And the reason why the purpose of the local church is so important to maintain is the local church and its assembling are for those who understand that high calling and are striving to work towards that calling, who are interested in growing in the glory of that calling, who want the responsibility that God has individually tasked them with so that we can glorify God in our community as much as possible, teaching the lost, bringing God's name to those who do not know him, and bringing the glory of God where it has not been brought before. So next week, we'll talk more, Lord willing, about the purpose of the local church and and what the scripture says about the purpose of Christians working together and identifying together under the name of Jesus. If you're here this morning and um, you're not a part of God's church at all, you have not obeyed the gospel and been baptized into Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, these truths, despite appearances, God does things that are unfathomably extraordinary in their reality, but in their visible realization, they seem so simple and unappealing. You remember John the Baptist who came in camel's hair and eating uh, bugs and wild honey. You know, the Pharisees were were expecting something much more glorious looking and all they got for the ambassador of the Messiah was this humble looking seemingly madman in the wilderness proclaiming a very simple message. But Jesus would say there was not one born of women greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know, if you're meeting with the group here and and you've been meeting with the group here or you've heard things about God, you know, by appearances, you will not see the glory of Christ himself. All we can do is testify to that glory to shine the light of God's glory and to say, just like in Isaiah chapter 2, come, let's go. Let's learn what God has said directly. Let's see him, let's seek him, let's be the people he's called us to be. If there's anything we can do for you, if there's any spiritual need that we can help you with, please bring it forward while we stand and sing your invitation song.